Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Threepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void where prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. This is Max Reaper, editor of Royals Review, and I'm glad to be back again hosting the Royals Review Radio podcast. I do want to thank Alex Duvall and Jeremy Greco for hosting the podcast for the last year. They did a terrific job, and uh, it was really uh, really neat to hear what they were able to do and, and, and be on a guest on a few times. Alex, of course, is still writing at Royals Farm Report, uh, and Jeremy's still writing at our site, and he hasn't completely left us yet. In fact, he's, he's joining us here tonight. Jeremy, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Uh, how are you doing? Uh, you know, I'm just taking it day by day. That's, uh, I, I think that's, uh, that was, uh, that's, I think somebody had that last year and, and I, I want to steal it, but I obviously can't remember who they are. So I've failed utterly. I think it was in an old, uh, like Dan Patrick thing on sports center. He said something, something like, uh, this guy is day to day and, and aren't we all. So, uh, uh, you know, <laughs> I think it's an all, it's a, it's a frequent joke, I think among sports, but, uh, I think we're all kind of, these days we're all day to day at this point. Also joining us is Royals Review writer and editor Matthew Lamar. Matthew, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. I'd just like to point out um, I'm I'm kind of not perversely happy, but I, I'm kind of happy that we're using Skype to record this. I don't know. I feel like Skype had a 28 to 3 lead um, in, and then the <laughs> pandemic hit and then Zoom came out of nowhere and everyone's using Zoom. And I'm like, Skype's perfectly fine. Anyway, that dates me. So, you know, takes that for what you will. And this is not sponsored content, I just want to point out. Uh, and I think I'm just, I'm just a Luddite, and I, I like to go with old technology, Zoom. Uh, I, 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 yeah, I agree. I don't know why Zoom you know, went out in front of everything else. All of a sudden, there's so many other, other uh, different uh, competitors, but uh, they, I guess, were the best at getting their name out there. I don't know. Uh, later on, we'll talk to uh, Brad Porter, local Kansas City reporter, about his memories of the last work stoppage in baseball. But... I did want to turn to our attention to the current work uh, stoppage, uh, the current labor situation. Uh, this week, we've had owners and players at least talking. That's the good news. Uh, the bad news is they're making very, very little progress. Uh, owners said today that February 28th is going to be their deadline and getting a deal done in order to have a four-week-long spring training and a full regular season. If talks go on beyond that, then that means they're going to start canceling games and uh, not making them up, which and of course not paying the players to play those games. You know, Matthew, uh, we're starting to get down to to the nitty gritty, the, the 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 real crunch time here. How optimistic are you at this point that we'll get a full season in? And how do you kind of see this playing out at this point? Because it seems like they're taking things down to the wire. Yeah, I, I don't know. Uh, I really don't know. I. Throughout this whole process, I've been relatively optimistic um, because after missing so many games and after the sort of mess that was the 2020 season, um, 
I sort of thought that people would be on both sides. People on both sides would be really looking forward to getting a deal done. And to be fair, the players have been looking forward and they've, the players have been very present. Um, the ownership, not so much. What really sort of bothers me about this is this is totally the owner's doing like they, you know, you know, that, um, that video of the guy who's in the, the hot dog suit and he's like, <laughs> we're all, we're all wondering who did this. It's okay. And he's the guy who, you know, crashed through the, through the building. That's the kind of the owners right now. They're like, Oh, well we gotta, we gotta have it by February 28th or else. Well, the owners were the ones who just sat on their hands for six weeks at the beginning of December. Like what really frustrates me about this is this week could have happened the first week of December and it did not because the owners didn't want to. So I I think the owners are honestly using the threat of canceled games as leverage against the players. Um, because while I think it's a different landscape than it used to be, and there's, uh, thanks to social media, players can get their message out unfiltered, you know, very quickly. Um, they can build, you know, make use of their personal brands. I think that once games start going under, sort of your average fan is going to start to get angry at the players. You know, you're making out here making millions. Why aren't you playing games? And everybody else is going through all these hard times and, and whatnot. So I, I really think that's that's kind of what the owner's strategy has been. Um, and it's it's gotten more and more clear as it, as it goes on that the owners are using that as, as leverage. And they know that once games start getting canceled, players are not going to come out as well because, you know, the players are the ones who aren't playing for better or for worse. And the optics of that looks like the players don't want to play, even if it, that's not true. It sort of doesn't matter. The optics are what the optics are. So I think they're trying to strong arm the players into, into doing something. Um, the league ha- hasn't really moved a whole lot on their varying issues. Um, but really, as sort of Jeff Passon tweeted today, um, or this evening, I guess, uh, as you're listening to this, if you want to take a look at it, it's Wednesday the 23rd. So what he tweeted on Wednesday the 23rd, he tweeted a really interesting thread about the competitive balance tax and how that was sort of the linchpin to the whole thing. Um, and that once that started moving, then the rest of it would all kind of, you know, fall into place. So we'll see. They are certainly coming out down to the wire, but it's it's a self-imposed deadline. Like it's it put it this way. It's like you're, you're in college, right? And you've got a final paper due and you know, the final paper is due when the final paper is due at the beginning of the semester. And then you just don't work on it until the last week. You know, (laughs) that's, that's what's happening. And that's, what's I think really frustrating. Not so much that there's little movement on both sides because there's millions and millions and millions of dollars that's there here. It's that the owners just went, nah, we don't want to think about it. And then now they're sort of reaping the consequences of it, which on their end is exactly what they want to do. I, I think that's part of their strategy. Yeah. And it seems kind of like a fake deadline. I mean, like it's, it's their deadline. They could lift the lockout whenever they wanted to. And the, the, the need for a four week spring training that they've had a shorter spring training before, you know, I'll talk a little bit about that with, with Brad Porter in a minute, but you know, they had a three week spring training in 1995 and you know, it wasn't the greatest season of, you know, of all time or anything, but they were able to make do with it. Um, and so, you know, and, 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 you know, having to push back games or shorten the season, um, you know, 
that's that's what they have have claimed has to happen. That, that's not necessarily. There's nothing in like the inherently in the laws of nature that says that they need a four week spring training and they they can't make those games up uh, any anyhow. So it is it is a bit silly. And and, and it, to me, I kind of think like the the owners are okay with games kind of getting canceled because that means they don't have to pay players for those games. And if, as long as they still get their postseason, which is the real cash cow, I think they're kind of okay with that, Jeremy. You kind of wrote this week about how they're looking at short-term uh, over the long-term. Um, and I think that kind of that kind of, right, that, that strategy kind of, um, kind of bolsters your point a little bit. They're not really looking at the long-term health or economics of the sport. They're kind of looking at short-term profits. Yeah, absolutely. Um, along with what I wrote over the weekend, I'd also point out that uh, – one way this is really short-term thinking is that uh, the 94 strike when they lost games uh, was did a lot of damage to baseball viewership. Um, and it's hard for me to understand why that is, even as a baseball fan, because when baseball comes back, I'm going to be there. It, it doesn't matter um, however long it takes. If there's no baseball this year, I'll be back next year, you know, whatever. But that was definitely a thing that happened. And, um, if there is no baseball in in 2020 or excuse me 2022 or if it uh if it's delayed or they lose games then that damages the sport the brand of major league baseball now in the short term people will blame the players because they love to blame the players uh just to uh, push back a little bit uh, against you there matthew the players have moved some uh, more than the owners have, at least, in that they came in wanting things like uh, a quicker path to free agency and earlier arbitration and larger changes to how arbitration worked, and they've pretty much given up on all that stuff. Um, so they've they've conceded a fair amount, and people still look at them and say, well, it takes two to negotiate. Why aren't you guys giving up some more? And, and the players have given up a lot, and the owners haven't really moved. Um, but so... The in the short term, the players may get blamed for this, and it may pressure them into starting the season. But in the long term, it could cost baseball fans. And if baseball stops, I don't think they're worried about the the in stadium stuff as much because they've been kind of shrinking stadiums and making a more premium stuff anyway. Um, but if it stops becoming the thing that drives that commercial revenue that sports do, that's why sports get such big TV deals is because people watch them live. So they watch the commercials. It's the only way networks can get people to watch the commercials. Uh, that if people stop watching in general, then that's going to hurt MLB in the long term. Yeah. I think they, they, the owners would be happily, perfectly fine with like an 80 game schedule and like 16 teams in the playoffs that would be like their dream scenario right there then they have more playoff games to market and and less uh, of a regular season now to pay out uh but yeah i i agree with a lot of that uh you know and it's it's really frustrating as a fan and and i you know I, you say like you know why would this why would this drive away fans you know i posted that article about the 1995 royals um when they had the last work stoppage and like the first four or five comments from our readers were like, yeah, I remember that season. That's the year I kind of tuned out of baseball um, because there's a lot, there was just a lot of resentment. And for whatever reason, people take the labor issues in baseball much harder 
than in other sports. NFL had a, a big strike in 87, but it didn't really seem to hurt the sport uh, that much uh, in the, after that. The NBA, you know, they lost uh, half a season and it didn't really seem to hurt them that much. The hockey lost uh, a full season and it didn't really see, you know, that's, that's a sport maybe that was already struggling anyway, but, uh, you know, it doesn't really seem like it hurt them any more than anything else in the long term. So for whatever reason, baseball seems to, to really get hurt, uh, hurt by that. Maybe that's because, Baseball players were the first to get, you know, become, become millionaires. They're the first pro athletes to, to really um, do well in free agency and, and, and make big salaries. Um, and, you know, it hasn't really kept – those salaries haven't really kept up over the years compared to other sports now. But, but there's still a perception of, of these millionaire players fighting with billionaire owners, uh, which isn't quite true considering that, like, 60% of the players make minimum wage, uh, which is one of the big things they're fighting about. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it is, it is really frustrating. And, and, and Matthew, uh, you know, you mentioned that the collective bargaining, uh, the collective, uh, excuse me, CBT, the competitive balance tax, I should say, which is the biggest um, kind of biggest issue, I think, on the table and one that hasn't really uh, had much traction in negotiations. How do you see that kind of working itself out? Is that, I mean, we see, we've seen incremental movement on both sides but no one seems to want to address the elephant in the room and I kind of feel like this could move fast but unless that's addressed I don't know how they're going to you know meet in the middle anywhere yeah and I really don't know either uh, it's it, uh, on one hand you kind of almost wish that like you could get get the grand poobah powers and then just look at both the numbers and just snap your fingers and the number in the middle is what happens but you know I think Someone else on Twitter, another reporter, said said this, but like the worldviews, so to speak, of of the owners and of the union are so completely different that I don't really know. I mean, obviously, they'll eventually get it right. We will get baseball at some point, whenever that is. But what happens to get to that point? I don't I don't know. The pessimist in me sort of thinks that the owners are just they're so fewer owners right there's 30 owners and 30 people getting together is way easier than thousands of people or hundreds of people however big the union is and probably thousands um when you look at um you know everyone involved um you know a lot of people it's 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 very it's very different um and the owners the owners are just more unified on this front and they are all super duper super duper rich um and if there is no baseball for the next five years all of the owners will continue to be super duper super duper rich where all of the baseball players will you know their styles of life will drastically and completely change so it's a really fascinating sort of sort of you know dichotomy here on one hand you have the players who are the league and if they don't if they can if they strike they've got the the labor power there on the other hand the owners are so unified and they the discrepancy between the two is so huge that it's it's really hard to sort of see any owner sort of stepping out of line and that's another one of the weird things you know and i and i sort of think of this kind of awkwardly you know the royals have all the have this new owner right john sherman <laughs> yeah and john sherman steps in and it gets covid and then what happens uh, i don't not john sherman getting the disease. <laughs> yeah. john sherman's team has to navigate covid right and then what happens there's all this fight between the owners and the players and john sherman you know when he was there was sort of at least on, on my my end and my uh, understanding of, of sort of the pr 
uh, situation is that he, he was trying to position himself as, you know, a champion of Kansas City, right? A champion of the players and of baseball. And who has stepped out of line to say, you know, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't have a lockout. No owner, including John Sherman, right? That was a unanimous decision. There wasn't one single owner who just went, I don't think this is a good idea. They all unanimously agreed to lock out the players. So it's really hard to see, you know, maybe going off tangent a little bit here, but it's really hard to see like John Sherman in the light that you, we might have otherwise seen him in just because of he's entangled in all of this owner stuff. And it's, it's really, it's a really huge mess and it's, it's not great to see. Yeah. I'm wondering if we are going to start seeing a little bit of dissension among the owners. I mean, like you say, John Sherman, I'm sure he'd like to start making some money, you know, <laughs> selling some tickets uh, and getting, getting fans into Kauffman stadium. Steve Cohen just bought the Mets. It seems like he's itching to spend money on players, you know, the Rangers were looking to spend a lot of money. The Tigers were looking to spend a lot of money this year. Uh, they haven't got a chance to do that. So I wonder if there is maybe starting to start, you know, the more financial pressure we see, the more cracks in the, in the, in the veneer a little bit. Uh, Jeremy, let's talk a little bit about the fan perspective. Uh, I, I saw there was a fan union that created to kind of try to get a voice in negotiations. I don't think that's going to go anywhere. And I think Craig Calcaterra implied that, um, the the law firm that had put that union together was had also represented a lot of teams in the past, and that there perhaps is a, a grass turf uh, or an astroturf uh, kind of uh, effort there, where it's not really fans that are putting that group together. Um, you know, but I do think that the perspective among fans now is a lot different than 1995, with more more fans sympathetic to the the players than were in '95. But what's kind of your sense on on where fans how they're siding and and, and what they want to see in a resolution. I I wasn't a fan in 95, 94, 95, so I can't really speak to the comparison. But I have been extremely disappointed in the number of uh, remarks I have seen and heard from people that say, uh, that, that focus on the millionaires versus billionaires thing when that's not what anyone is really that's not what the players union is is fighting for they're not fighting for mike trout they're not fighting for max scherzer those guys are getting paid regardless um they're fighting for the guys who are going to come up for a couple years and then you're never going to hear from them again um and trying to make sure that those guys get paid what they're worth um and and it's it's been hugely frustrating to me to just hear this over and over again. Oh, well, both sides need to just come together. You know, you you just gotta, you just gotta. Sometimes you just gotta make a compromise, and and that's all well and good in theory. Um, but then I see things like the owners proposing a, a collective bargaining tax cap that would um, that would actually be once you factor in inflation would actually be lower than the one that they currently have even though we know that their their profits are going up because the the tv deals keep going up like no one said oh i hope the royals can make the same amount of money when they get their new tv deal everyone assumed oh they're gonna make a lot more money and they did um and and that's just that's across the board every new tv deal is bigger than the last one uh the the owners are branching out into um, into real estate and and development and they're they're finding all kinds of ways to make more and more money uh, with the baseball teams and they do not want to give any of it to the players despite the fact that 
without the players, there is no game. Um, there's no draw to their stadium for their real estate development. And it's it's just so incredibly frustrating to me to watch the owners make these awful, awful proposals that really are a step backwards uh, from from where the, the deal is now. And, and then the players keep making concessions, even when they make small ones, and everyone goes, oh, well, the players just need to give in more. Why don't they just go out there and play? You know, I'd go out there and play for half of what they make. Yeah, I'm sure you would, but you're not as good as these guys, so no one's going to pay to watch that. Uh, and they deserve to get paid, you know, a fair wage. They deserve to get paid some reasonable percentage of the amount of money they bring in. It doesn't make sense for them to bring in millions and billions of dollars and then walk away with peanuts. Why should they do that? Why should they allow themselves to be used that way? I I just don't understand the logic because I know no one would do that in their own in their own lives. No one would turn around and say, oh, well, you know, uh, for the good of my company, I will sacrifice 20% of my salary uh, so that the owner can make a little bit more money and everyone and, and things will keep moving. No one's going to say that. That would be dumb. So why do we expect it from the players? I guess I just still see this this idea that players aren't people, that they're just here to entertain me. Why aren't they entertaining me? And I wish people would see them more as people. Yeah, I think people. I think the, the the publication of their salaries is a big part of it too. Like like people see like Mark, Max Scherzer makes thirty six million dollars, and they assume you know well that's probably commonplace. Well, he's an outlier. You know, there's some players that make that do very very well. Like there's people that do very well in every industry. Uh, the mm-hmm. top you know make a lot of money, uh, and there's people with the even the minimum wage. And you could say well minimum wage is still like five hundred seventy thousand dollars, but. Uh, you know that's the that's the money they're going to make in their baseball career. You know, like they you don't you only play till you're, you know, if you're lucky you'll play into your 30s. Uh, you know, you, you know most likely you're only going to play a couple of years, and you may get shuffled up and down, and you know you may not get that full five hundred seventy thousand dollars for that year. So uh, for the vast majority and, of players, they're not getting you know that the big money. Uh, and how many might, years did they spend in the minor leagues getting paid nothing right before they got there? Yeah, and, and so you, you talked about the luxury tax a little bit, and uh, you know one of the problems is that they have to negotiate this tax like every time the collective bargaining comes up, and other sports don't have this issue because the they you know have a salary cap where uh, that's pegged to a certain percentage of revenues, mm-hmm. uh, and baseball's baseball the baseball union for, for for reasons for I think good reasons have, has always resisted that, but Matthew you had an interesting article this week uh, about what it would be like if we had a cap in baseball with with a floor with a salary floor uh could you talk a little bit about that and what what what, what was kind of your conclusion about um you know whether or not that would be a good thing in baseball or not so the the thing about a salary cap is that you also have to have a salary floor uh, in order to get teams to spend a certain amount of money otherwise you have this hard cap and there's no minimum while teams could just spend very little money and then you just reap all the rewards so you have to kind of tie them together right so there are a lot of a couple leagues i think the nfl the nba i'm not sure about the national hockey league i'm not canadian i've never lived in minnesota (laughs) so i'm not sure about that um but give give us a team patrick mahomes (laughs) yeah give us a team and I'll, i'll be into it um but so I chose the NBA to take a look at um, as, as sort of a comparison 
I think the NFL's uh, convoluted cap rules just kind of make comparisons like really tricky. The NBA is a little bit more straightforward. Yes, there are exceptions to the salary cap, but those are also pretty straightforward. Um, so basically, NBA sets a salary cap based on the previous season's revenue. Um, it's a soft cap, so teams can spend above that line. Um, there is a basically a version of the competitive balance tax. They call it the luxury tax, where if you pay over a certain amount over you have to pay more and more and more uh, of a of a percentage, right? So, say a player makes two million dollars, well, you may owe four million because you're over the luxury tax. Um, so that way, it allows teams to spend more money. But that also ties a, a salary floor. So the salary cap is X number, and the salary floor is ninety percent of the salary cap. So basically, in, in the last full season before the pandemic. Um, the NBA pulled in $8.8 billion in revenue, and the salary cap was set at $109 million, so about 36% of the per-team revenue. Um, so what I did is I, I tied that, those numbers to the last full season um, that Major League Baseball had without the pandemic. So in uh, 2019, Major League Baseball pulled $10.7 billion in total revenue. So uh, if you assign that same you know, 36% share, you get a salary cap of about $128.5 million and a salary floor of $115 million. Well, if you think about it, that is a lot more money than a whole bunch of teams uh, have done. So 15 teams that year did not reach the NBA-style salary floor. So... That would mean that the Kansas City Royals would spend $83 million. Well, they would have to spend at least $115 million, right? That's a huge difference in terms of the players. And the way that the NBA has it set up that you can have a, um, you know, a payroll of $83 million. You just have to pay the people on your team $115 million. So there's no reason why you would ever have it below because you have to pay that money anyways to the players. So you might as well try to get, you know, players. So even with kind of a lower um, adjusted, uh, you know, a, a lower hard cap in that scenario or a lower luxury tax in that scenario, the difference between what the lowest teams in Major League Baseball are, are paying um, and what they would have to pay if you set up a similar style of salary floor is is huge. So... Just a couple more numbers, and then I'll, then I'll be done. In 2019, the opening day payroll for all 30 teams was about $3.81 billion. If you set it up with this, um, basically the salary floor and the sort of soft cap so teams can still spend what they spent in 2019, that uh, payroll, that total league payroll, goes from $3.81 billion to $4.2 billion. So that's over $300 million going to the playoffs um, with a soft cap and a hard cap. So, you know, this is just like a look at an example, right? Um, Major League Baseball actually proposed uh, a salary floor and a salary cap earlier in this whole offseason debacle, and the, the union turned it down. But I think, I think that's really the only way that you can reasonably and consistently over a long-term basis ensure that the revenues are going where they are. Yes, you're probably going to have to give up certain things, but if you make sure that teams have to spend a certain amount of money, and if that the money is high enough, you as a players association are going to get more money overall, a lot more money. 
And that's uh, even true if there is a lower hard cap at the top end. Um, it's just, you know, with the way that baseball is situated right now, uh, there's just such a huge, you know, like the Miami Marlins in 2019, they paid 62, $63 million, right? To go from 63 to 115, which is what they should have been paying um, with like an NBA style cap. That's a huge, 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 huge difference. Um, and this is not really going to happen. The union is not pursuing it. And the major league baseball's proposal was, you know, maybe made sense in 2019, but this is for 2022 and moving forward. So it's, it's low. It wasn't a real, real offer, but I think that's really, it it would also require a lot more revenue sharing too, um, which is also another reason why that really hasn't happened in major league baseball and has happened in other leagues is because other leagues do revenue sharing and they, you know, publish their revenues. So there are a number of reasons why it wouldn't work or why there would be hurdles to it. But when I looked at the numbers, I was, you know, kind of stunned at how much of a difference, just this one change, no other changes, no other increase to minimum salaries would, would do. I was just going to say, just to, to throw it out there, um, the, the lack of revenue sharing is another short-sighted move by MLB. Uh, it means that the Yankees owner, I don't even know who owns the Yankees right now. Steinbrenner. Uh, Stein, still Steinbrenner's, okay. Yeah. Um, the Yankees owner gets to take home more money than John Sherman now uh, because the Yankees make more money and they don't have to do complete revenue sharing. But it also means that the Royals, the Pirates, the Reds, the Marlins don't play competitive baseball. And for now, that doesn't matter. Nobody that people are still watching the sport. But you have to think eventually people are going to get sick of of watching the, their teams not compete and they're going to quit watching. And then the Yankees are going to start pulling in less money because the league is going to be pulling in less money. So I just, I think that's one of those things of, that's very short-sighted by the owners where if they did a full revenue sharing, yes, some of them would make less money now, but it would guarantee the health of the sport into the future. Well, to be fair, it's, it's not, it's, some owners want it, uh, but that's been opposed by the union as well. The union is very much against revenue sharing. I'm, yeah, they don't. They want the Yankees to be able to spend a lot of money on those players. But but I, I think it's a little short sighted on their part. And I think yes. Matthew, to your point, um, you know, a lot of this I think comes from just decades of animosity between the players and and union and I, the players and the owners. Um, and I think the owner the, the the players take the stance of like, well, we'll you know we're going to make our money and we don't care if you guys make a profit or not. That's we're just going to get what's owed to us and we're going to count on market forces driving up our salary and, and you know the power of free agency to 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 drive up our salaries too so we can get what's ours uh and if that's if that's 80 percent of revenues that's great if it's 40 percent of revenues then that's when it's going to be uh whereas the nba nfl model is more like you know we, we'll get 45 percent no matter what if in good times you know a rising tide lifts all boats and in the bad times we all share in the pain and it's it's a much different approach and I get where the union's coming from, but at the same time, like, uh, you know, if, if you're counting on market forces, well, baseball teams are wising up and they're not real they They figured out that players 30 and over are not a good investment and they're not going to spend money if they don't have to. And there's a lot of teams that are kind of free riding it, like the Rays and the A's that are still finding ways to win without having to spend money on players. And so I think it, if, if, if owners aren't going to spend money, if they don't have to spend money, they're not going to spend money. And, I think it's probably about time for the union to kind of wise up and say, we got to, we got to make teams spend money. And I think if you, 
increase, you know, if you increase revenue sharing, if you have a floor, suddenly you have more bidders for free agents. And having more bidders will get those market forces back in play. And that yep. will get salaries back up because you have multiple teams bidding for a free agent instead of Mike Moustakas who can't find anyone that wants the services because, you know, all these teams are cutting back on free agency. So uh, I think MLB already has a cap. As Matthew was just saying, they have the same name, the luxury tax in the NBA, um, and they can go over it, but they have to pay extra, and then they have the floor. And I think the players' union, uh, by my understanding, has opposed the floor 100% without fail because they're afraid it would lead to a cap, but they've already got a cap. So it's time for them to look into a floor. Now, if I remember correctly, as you said, that proposal MLB made earlier this year was like an 80 million floor, which is not enough. Uh, 115 sounds much more reasonable, uh, but the the idea of a floor, and I wish this is the one thing I the players have really upset me with is I agree they've been very short sighted because the cap is already there they need to accept that reality and they need to negotiate on the floor instead of when MLB came and said well we'll give you an 80 million floor instead of saying no no floors they should have said okay floor but it needs to be higher. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know that that would have succeeded. They haven't been able to get very far with any of their other negotiations. But that's what I would have liked to, in an ideal world, that's what I would have liked to have seen them do. I think that, uh, again, like I said, for the long-term health of the sport, um, revenue sharing is vital. And I think uh, the salary floor makes a lot of sense. And I know the players, like you said, they're counting on the Yankees to spend big. But if the Yankees don't have to to bid against anyone they don't have to spend as big if everybody is bidding against each other like you said the the salaries are going to go up and uh and like uh matthew said there's no reason not to spend that money if you have to spend it because uh of the floor anyways you might as well go out there and maybe that 31 year old guy still has something left and instead of being like well i'll give him a minor league deal which is what they're doing right now there'd be a bidding war for him and so that would help increase those salaries on those fringes uh, in, a, in a way that the players were kind of used to seeing uh, prior to uh, the, the front offices kind of figuring out, you know, aging curves and, and all this other stuff. Let's take a quick break. I'll talk to Brad Porter about the 1995 Royals, and then we'll come back and wrap things up with uh, Matthew and uh, Jeremy. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it then in that moment. You don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of like afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts. And joining me now is Brad Porter. He's a longtime reporter and sports broadcaster in the Kansas City area. He's been covering the Royals in some respect for over 20 years. Brad, thanks for uh, being on the podcast today. Absolutely, Max, and I appreciate all the work you and your team at Royals Review do, and it's always, um, even when we have no baseball or spring training, you guys always put out stuff to 
kind of keep the baseball vibes going. Love it. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And yeah, there's been no baseball, no active baseball to to write about. So we, uh, you know, I took a look back at the 1995 team because you know that was the last time we had a work stoppage, and yeah. uh, and the last time we had a shortened spring training and a shortened regular season. And so I thought that maybe that would be a good time to maybe look at some some parallels. And it was kind of interesting because I was. Uh, you know, you know. I think you said you you started covering uh, sports kind of around that time, and I was still in high school and 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 kind of, you know, really starting to become a big Royals fan at that time. But but that work stoppage really killed a lot of momentum around baseball, uh, uh, and it and it took a while to to bring that back. Uh, I mean, just kind of looking back now, real, you know, at the, at the kind of the big picture, what are some of the parallels you see between that work stoppage and this one, and and what what is baseball kind of risking? By by having uh, a, a, an off season where nothing's really going on. Yeah, the the '94 season that was my very first season covering the Royals. So that was I was probably oh 22, 23 at the time. I was really young, and uh, that was an eye opener in terms of of letting you know this this game is a business. It's not just a sport for fun. It's a business. The parallels. Uh, are they're very different things they're arguing about now versus then and what hurt in 1994 was they canceled the world series i mean that was unfathomable that any league would cancel a championship i mean we thought at the time you know okay this will in 1994 we thought okay this will be done for a couple of weeks and then we'll come back and then we'll have the playoffs maybe a shortened playoffs but they canceled the world series and that was bud Selig. And for whatever you think about Bud Selig, and that was a, he'll always have that um, as part of his resume. And when that happened, fans around baseball, including me, even though I was covering the team, I was also a fan. I was like, are you kidding me? We're really not going to have a World Series? And for this season, to, uh, for 2022, I don't think that's a, I don't think that's a possibility. I think, I think a delayed start of the season is definitely in play right now. In fact, I've thought that since, that fit, that what 15 minute meeting back in December <laughs> and then they went 43 days without without a phone call or negotiating and so at that point I thought okay this season's going to be delayed and I still think it's probably going to be delayed unless they get something done by uh, you know Friday or what's the the owner's deadline is uh, February 28th if they don't get something done by then I think a delay is certainly in play but I don't think there is any way in the world we're not going to have a World Series this year. It's just not going to happen. And when I look back at your article on Royals Review about that 1995 team, I had forgotten a couple of things. One, the judge in the case was Sonia Sotomayor, who is now on the U.S. Supreme Court. And Major League Baseball estimated that they lost $700 million over the over the strike lockout. And that was largely because of the playoffs in the World Series. So, if the season starts late for Major League Baseball, I don't think they're going to lose $700 million or whatever it is in today's money because I still think they're going to have the playoffs in the World Series. So we're dealing in, I, I think, two different things here. Yeah, I think I agree with you. I think 95 was kind of a culmination in like years and years of like bitterness between you know the, the collusion efforts with the, with the owners in the late 80s. And, and you know, the free agency was still kind of a new thing and that owners are trying to kind of wrap their head around. And, and now, because of 95, 94, 95, I think – you have this big, uh, you know, worry that you know you don't want to cancel the World Series because right. of how bad that was. Not just for the the losses that year, but I mean, it took years for the sport to really recover from that. It was it was uh, when we were getting into late July, early August, nineteen ninety four. Being my first season, I was like, okay, I get to cover 
a team that's, that might go to the playoffs because the Royals were making that run where they won all those games, like a two-week winning streak. And one of the veteran players, still a good friend of mine, um, and he's a Royals Hall of Famer, pulled me aside one day and he said, Bradley, I'm going to be honest with you. We're, we're, we're not going to have a playoffs. And I was dumbfounded. And I said, you got to be kidding me because the owners are not going to let us play. And we're dug in on our side because we are we are pissed off and we're angry and neither side is going to give in and there's just there's not going to be a playoffs. And that was I'm not sure what the anger level is with the players right now. I know they're pretty ticked off about certain things and we all we can talk about that whenever you want. But um, 1994, 1995 was not good. That was the worst I've ever seen the relationship between owners and players. Let's turn to the Royals specifically that year, you know, that year. And, uh, you know, 94, uh, you know, a lot of fans remember they went on a, that late run uh, kind of in August yep. and really got into the, I think they were a game back uh, when, when uh, in this, out of first place when the uh, players went on strike, uh, finished the season 64 and 51 uh, since that's when the season ended, no World Series. Uh, kind of surprising, though, after the season, they fired manager Hal McRae. Uh, he had been a popular player, of course, and I, I think – you know, fairly popular manager, although, you know, certainly had some uh, tumultuous times. Uh, what was yeah. your kind of reaction to how <laughs> McCray getting fired? Uh, I was not surprised by it, but I know the players were very angry about it. Um, even though he got sideways with a couple of players, you remember um, his explosion that was caught on tape that <laughs> he gets played, you know, every couple of months. Uh, and he had screamed at the media, and then he opened the door and screamed at the players. So I think. Uh, just my opinion, I think Herb, Kirk Robinson and the board of directors were, didn't want to look bad anymore. Um, and I don't. I think Hal was frustrated by a lot of things as well. So it was not surprising, but certainly disappointing uh, because you know a legend, uh, one of only uh, one of the he's a Royals Hall of Famer and probably should have his number retired. That's a debate for another time. But it was not surprising, but certainly um, disappointing. And you kind of feel like uh, maybe they had kind of made the decision to fire him already, and then the team goes on yeah. a hot run in August, and it's like, yep. oh, okay, well, what are we going to do now? Um, but yeah, I think it was, a, you know, as a fan, at least at the time, I remember being pretty surprised by it, just because, you know, he did have a, it was probably the, the best season since, I think, maybe 89, uh, so it was kind of surprising yeah. that they kind of let him go after that kind of success, and, and I think later on, Herc Robinson said that that was one of his biggest regrets, was firing McCray, and he shouldn't have done that, but... You know, they were embarking on a youth movement. They expected guys like Johnny Damon and Michael Tucker and some other guys to kind of step up, and they were going to try to start, you know, letting go of some of the older older veteran players. Uh, they there was I found a note in one of the uh, old Sporting News articles that said they were interested in bringing back Whitey Herzog. I don't remember that as a rumor at the time. I don't know if you heard anything about that. I, I never heard it, but I did read that, okay. and I thought, well, that would be that would be <laughs> weird, but also interesting. <laughs> So I don't know if that was ever on the table, but they did. Uh, they did interview some candidates. Ron Gardenhire was an interesting candidate. Uh, they interviewed. He was a, a, tw- a, co- a coach with the Twins at the time. Uh, Tony Muser, who had later managed the team, he was a candidate mm-hmm. uh, as a Cubs coach. But ultimately, they went with uh, Reds coach Bob Boone, who of course had been a catcher with the Royals for a couple years at the end of his career. Uh, Bob Boone, Stanford educated, uh, kind of let people know that a lot. It seemed like. Um, oh yeah, I, I remember that uh, Jeffrey Flanagan was was quite dismissive of Boone a lot in his columns, uh, calling him Abner Booney Day for reinventing the game. <laughs> Jeffrey had the uh, 
the boonie meter oh, yeah. daily column <laughs> for how many lineups he had used over the course of a season. <laughs> right, yeah. It seemed like he didn't have the, the best relationship with the media. So I don't know. What do you remember from Bob yeah. Boone? Was he, was he just kind of a – that was his personality or was it because of the, you know, the, the things he was doing on the field? Uh, no, he was arrogant. Yeah. And I have a couple of other choice words for you, but I'm not going to share them on the podcast. He he did not care for me, uh, he because I was a young punk, and sometimes I asked stupid questions. Uh, he did not care for Jeffrey. I don't know if there was anybody in the media that Bob cared for. And I got off on the wrong foot the very first time uh, I interviewed him, and this, and I still do this to this day. So the first time I interviewed him, I said, "Coach," and he stopped me and he goes, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! I'm not a coach." I'm the manager over here. <laughs> you can call me Bob. You can call me Skipper. You can call me Skip. But I am not a coach. And to this day, whenever I meet a new manager, I say, "What? How do you refer to be? Uh, how do you prefer to be referred to? Uh, Skip, Skipper, um, Bob, Ned, Tony, whatever." And most of them are like, you know, I'm fine. And I call most of them Skip. The one guy, Ned Yost, when I asked him the first time, he goes. I'm just happy to be here. I don't care what you call me. <laughs> but Bob was, he talked down to me whenever I asked any question. And you remember Craig Paquette one year was really struggling. And I asked him something about Craig Paquette. And Bob went on this long explanation about, you know, it's like a skier. If you want to lean, if you want to turn right, you lean left. If you want to go left, you lean right. And this big, long thing. And I'm like, what the heck are you talking about? And yeah, he was, he was arrogant and condescending from day one and i never never liked the guy ever <laughs> yeah it seems like that was kind of the the consensus i, I think the, the, a lot of there were a lot of media barbs and and so i i imagine bob boone quite frequently thought he was the smartest man in the room. <laughs> yeah and still does probably uh well there's a question about what team he would be actually be managing uh since the players were on strike the owners had the bright idea of bringing uh-huh. in replacement players to play games, uh, hoping fans would find that acceptable. Uh, there was a couple, a couple established major leaguers who crossed the picket line. Uh, Dennis Oilcan Boyd, I think, it was probably one of the bigger names. Pedro, Bo- a forty-eight-year-old Pedro Bourbon came into camp I know, right? to try out. Um, <laughs> but you know, ultimately, it was a was a, was a bunch of guys that never gotten above Double A or playing in, in, in indie leagues at the time. Uh, did you were you sent to cover any of these replacement players? And what was kind of the expectation? That, that, did anyone think they were going to that these guys were really going to play major league baseball games? Uh, I did not get to cover them because they were down in spring training uh, in Florida, Baseball City at the time, where the Royals trained. So I was not down there. Uh, but the consensus I got from talking with actual major leaguers was no way they're going to run these guys out on the field. Because it would have been embarrassing. And I, when I read your article, I'd forgotten they were supposed to uh, start against Detroit that year. And Sparky Anderson had refused to manage the replacement players. And I'll say this about Bob Boone. He did his job, but I seriously doubt he took any joy in, in coaching, you know, for lack of a better term, scabs. That's what they were called. I don't, you know, he was a strong union guy in his day. And that coaching staff, um, you know, Jamie Quirk was on that staff. Bruce Keith, and boy, that guy was a hard ass. And uh, Greg Lazinski, Gene Mock, Mitchell Page. I don't think any of those guys enjoyed it. And the play, the the actual major league players were thinking that we're going to get this solved because there's no way they're going to do this. Can you imagine Saturday afternoon baseball? I think the old NBC game of the week was still on with what Joe Gargiola and Tony Kubek. Can you imagine? them putting a game on national television with 
50 guys you've never heard of before, that would have been a disaster. Major League Baseball knew it. The owners knew it. The players knew it. So I don't think anybody thought it would actually happen. I think it was all for show. Yeah, it would have been a mess for, for so many reasons. I mean, like, I think the Orioles weren't going to participate, and there was a question of, like, well, so what do we do with their games? Is Cal Ripken Jr.'s streak end because he's not on the field? Yeah. The, the Blue Jays were not uh, – the the law in Canada was like they couldn't have replacement players, so they were going to play games at their spring training facility. It, it would have been a mess, and then you're right. I think a huge embarrassment to the game. Yeah, and personally I'm glad Shag Crawford decided to walk away from it after a day because he was getting a lot of heat from his former teammates and Daryl Motley. The one guy I, I – honestly I feel bad for. And look, I grew up in a union family, uh, railroad engineers and all that. Uh, Jose Mota came up. Um, in the middle of the season for the Royals. And, of course, his dad was Manny Mota, famous the Los Angeles Dodgers player. Jose Mota came up, and he was a scab player, and he was treated like dirt. He was ignored. Nobody would talk to him, I think. And Bob Boone didn't want to play him. I think he played in two games total when I looked it up on Baseball Reference. And then he went on, and he's had a fantastic broadcasting career well, with the with the Angels doing – both Spanish and English broadcasts, and he decided to step down in February. But Jose Mota was treated like dirt, and I understood the players and their feelings about it, but I felt bad for him because he was a pariah in the clubhouse. And there's other stories like that, too, like Rick Reed, who pitched for the Royals at one point, um, had the choice to to cross the picket line, and and I guess his mom, I think, was sick with cancer, and he had bills to pay, and felt he had to yeah. do it so he you know he'd have a chance in baseball and of course many years later he ends up kind of making it with the Mets or twins in the Mets and and they treated him like like a, a prior for many years and I didn't share and licensing deals with him so yeah it was a really tough choice for a lot of players and and uh, certainly not a good situation but thankfully like you said judge uh, Sonia Sotomayor who at that time was a federal court uh, just district court judge ended the strike effectively on March 31st ruling that the, the owners weren't negotiating in good faith really led to a weird time because, you know, the owners had kind of unilaterally imposed uh, rules in the offseason that um, were suddenly wiped away. So, like, I guess Kevin Apier signed a three-year deal as a restricted free agent with the Red Sox, uh, but because the rules were just kind of swept aside, he had to return to the Royals <laughs> at the beginning of the season, <laughs> which kind of put the Royals in a tough bind because they uh, they were looking to trim payroll around that time. This is... Uh, Ewing Kaufman had died in 1993. Muriel Kaufman would die in March of that year, leaving the team in the hands of a nonprofit that was run by uh, a board of directors with David Glass at the head. So the Royals had to quit. They had to cut payroll quickly, and they did so in the, in the first week of April, trading Brian McRae on April 5th to the Cubs for two minor leaguers. And then two days later, they traded David Cohn, who was the reigning Cy Young Award winner, to the Toronto mm-hmm. Blue Jays for three minor leaguers. <laughs> Uh, pretty devastating blow for Royals fans. What do you remember about uh, remember that about that week in Royals history? Well, I had talked to players about the trades of Cone and BMAC, and for one thing, I say this all the time when I talk about David Cone, Max. I'm a Rockhurst High School grad. I grew up north of the river. Coney grew up in Northeast, so kind of similar. Uh, I can't believe the Royals drafted David Cone and traded him not once. But twice, <laughs> yeah. I will never get over the Royals trading David Cohn twice. That that said, when I talked to the players about BMAC and Coney getting traded, um, the general consensus was they were kind of the leaders during the strike and the lockout work stoppage. They were the vocal leaders. Uh, Coney, I believe, was the player rep, and BMAC might have been the assistant. And that was the reason. This is how the players felt. 
that was the reason those two guys were shipped out. Now, some of it may have had to do with money. I'll listen to that, but I will always believe it was their leadership during the strike, lockout, work stoppage that led them to be traded, and I didn't like it. Um, I've known BMAC since, since uh, gosh, since a long, long, 25, 30 years, and I still have hard feelings about that, and I think he has hard feelings about that, and Hal has hard feelings about the organization. So I think they were traded because they were the leaders uh, of the union um, side, and I'll, I'll never not believe that. Yeah, I think you know the, the, the first David Cohn trade gets ripped, but it, there was some solid justification for it. I mean, he was not the David Cohn we know now. He was kind of a, a wild-arm prospect. Ed Hearn had done yep. well at the major league level. We needed a catcher. The second David Cohn trade just – I mean, it, it, it was made it was, under, you know, under uh, duress, you know, and we got really Chris Steins was the best player and he was a utility infielder for a few years. I mean, it was really no one of note that we got in either of those trades. No, and, and I'll say this about Ed Hearn. I know he gets he gets cracked because he was on the other side of that trade. I'm telling you, Max, Ed Hearn is one of the nicest, most generous people you'll ever meet. He does. He still to this day does a lot of charity work and does things in Kansas City and super nice guy just bad that he was on the the wrong end of that deal <laughs> yeah well you know even with cone and mccray gone the royals still had you know quite a few veterans they had a pretty good defensive infield with wally joiner at first base jose yep. chico leaned at second greg gagney at short gary gaiety at third uh they brought back vince coleman and felix jose to play the outfield although jose only lasted a few weeks before they released him uh and then they let speedster tom goodwin play in center field he would end up stealing 50 bases that year but when you yep. look back at that lineup, I mean, Cleveland was trotting out Manny Ramirez, Albert Bell, Jim Tomey, Kenny Lofton, Carlos Baerga. Uh, You know, the, the two lineups really didn't compare at all. No, and that was that was right at the beginning of Cleveland uh, ramping up with all those young guys. And you remember, they might have been kind of like when the Royals changed the bullpen philosophy in 2014-15 and everybody else followed suit. Cleveland at that time was kind of the first out of the shoot with taking these young guys and saying, okay, you've had one or two good years. Let's give you a six-year contract. And all those guys like Vizquel and Bayerga and Alomar and uh, those guys all got long deals before, I think some of them before they hit arbitration and many of them before they hit free agency. And so, yeah, they, the Royals were, they had some decent young talent. Um, Bob Hamlin was on that team in 95, and that's when he collapsed. Uh, they thought that uh, Johnny Damon and Michael Tucker coming up, Joe Vitiello, uh, Phil Hyatt, a very young Joe Randa. They thought these were guys that were going to build around. And, you know, some of them, you know, Johnny Damon obviously had a great career. Joe Randa had a great career. Vitiello did not work out. Um, and he's a great dude. Phil Hyatt did not work out. And he is a great dude. But the players they were counting on, and Tom Goodwin had a great long career. Uh, so those guys they were counting on, it just didn't turn out. And, and as you referenced, Cleveland, it wasn't even close. Yeah, I had a lot of Phil Hyatt stock back in the day. <laughs> I was, uh, high, I was yeah. pretty high on him. Uh, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I'll tell you what, you, you mentioned Wally Joyner. To this day, I don't think I've ever seen a first baseman turn the three six three as smooth and as good as Wally Joyner. He's that good. Yeah, it was it was a good defensive team, and they had good pitching as well. I mean, uh, one of the interesting yep. things Bob, Bob Boone did did do that year was have a, a four man rotation uh, with Apier, uh, Tom Gordon, Mark Gubazaw, and most of the time Chris Haney, uh, which mm -hmm. you know, and, and you know he'd fill in a fifth starter when he needed to. But 
kind of with those four guys, they, they were able to put together a pretty good rotation and have a good defense. The problem was baseball was kind of trending towards offense, and the Royals just didn't right. have enough of it. I was looking back at those pitchers um, before we came on here, and you know, Tom, a very young Tom Gordon won 12 games that year, and he, I think he was both in the rotation and out of the bullpen. Uh, Gooby had 12 wins that year, and Ape had 15 wins, and then, of course, he had some arm trouble. He had that, the dead arm uh, issue, which happens. But, yeah, they had decent guys. But as you said, there was no power. I think the Royals were counting on Chris James to provide some power, and that just it, it didn't happen. He got traded again late in the year when they were when they were cutting everybody. Yeah, and I think they're expecting Hamlin to be a big bopper, and he yep. ended up cratering. Gary Gaetti was kind of their one source of power. He uh, almost set the club home run record with 35 home runs that year, one short of uh, Bal, uh, uh, Balboni's record at the time. Uh, so there was some pop, but but not 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 nearly enough, not uh, enough to keep up with Cleveland. Although the Royals got off to a pretty good start that year, they they uh, by mid June they were uh, twenty seven and eighteen, uh, second best record in the league, but also seven games back of Cleveland, who had the best record in the league. So ordinarily that would mean the Royals were out of it, but this was the first year of the wild card, and so the Royals were kind of in the wild card chase. And even when they slumped in July, they had a really bad July, ten and eighteen. Kevin Apier, like you said, had his dead arm period where uh, he eventually had to land on the disabled list. But the Royals, you know, they fell to 500, but there wasn't. it was basically just Cleveland, California, and Boston at the time that were good. And everyone else is around 500, giving an opening to the Royals. Uh, even at 500, did you feel like this team could make a run to the postseason? Yeah, I, th- I thought the you know the starting pitchers with Gooby and Ape and Gordo I thought were good enough. And the, the bullpen was decent but not great. But I still thought with the veteran guys, um, they would they would keep the team in it. And they even after the, those trades in August, uh, when they traded a lot of veteran players, they uh, they still got on a little run and they collapsed at the end. But I I thought it was such a weird year that I thought I thought almost uh, that most of the teams that were hovering around 500 still had a chance. So yeah, I I thought the Royals still had a chance. Well, they didn't make any trades in, in June or July to pick up anyone other than Jason Hockamy, a young pitcher from oh, yeah. the Mets, who I, I, yeah. I went to his only complete game shutout, and I thought he was amazing at the time. <laughs> and I remember yeah. uh, Chris Berman had a great Bermanism for him. It was uh, Jason Hockamy can be lovers if we can't be friends, which I thought was just amazing. <laughs> but uh, other than that, they didn't make any big trades. Uh, but they didn't also didn't trade anyone, anyone away until, like you say, August, when they decided, okay, it's, it, we're, we're kind of treading water. Let's let's uh, let go of Vince Coleman and Chris James and Pat Borders, the backup catcher, and go with young players like Michael Tucker and Johnny Damon. And from what I understand, that wasn't taken very well by the clubhouse at all. No, it was not. Uh, there was I was there um, those nights on I think it was August 14th and 15th when the Borders and Coleman trades were announced to the club, and in particular the night Coleman was traded. And there were other moves as well that night. Uh, we were outside the clubhouse waiting to go in, and normally it's it's about five or ten minutes after the game when the clubhouse doors open, and 15, 20 minutes later, we're standing around, and I'm telling you, Max, you could hear the shouting outside the doors, <laughs> and you have to be pretty loud. Those are pretty thick doors. You could hear the shouting. It sounded like things were getting thrown. I, I can't confirm that. Nobody would say, and when we walked through those clubhouse doors, just my observation Vince Coleman was absolutely fuming, and Herc had, Herc had, uh, Herc Robinson had come out of the clubhouse doors before we went in, and he was red faced, and I, I'm assuming he took a lot of um, 
verbal abuse and Herc is a nice guy. He was just put in the wrong position. He should have never been the general manager, but that's the way the Royals, the board of directors had it at the time. But Vince Coleman was fuming in the clubhouse and you can see some of the other veteran players were like, what the heck are we, are we doing here? We, we're kind of in this, we're close and you just cut our legs out from under us. And it was, that was as bad as I've ever seen a major league clubhouse. It was just, um, it was dejection. It was anger. Um, every range of negative emotion you can think of. Um, and to their to the players' credit, they still played well for you know a week or two. Uh, but they they knew it was over at that point, and and it, such a disappointing finish that that's the way it ended. That's funny. That ended up being actually a really good move for Coleman. I mean, he ends up going to the Seattle Mariners who make that, yep. you know, really historic run at a wild card, force a one game playoff with um, uh, California, not, not for the wild card, but for the Western division. Uh, and then end up making it in the playoffs. And he's a, he's a big part of that. So, uh, but yeah, I can see what that would be. I can see players being very upset at that uh, team getting broken up a little bit. Uh, and you're right. They did play a little bit better over the next couple of weeks, but, but uh, a six game losing streak and, and a, a poor couple of weeks at the end, uh, Forced them to go under 500. The end of the season at 70 and 74. Uh, just to kind of wrap things up with the 95 Royals. What, 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 what's kind of your overall impression of that club? It seems like it kind of marked the end of an era of one era of Royals baseball and really marked the, uh, the the beginning of another. Yeah, that was that was the end of uh, having those veteran players. From then on, it was all young guys, and and I had forgotten that was the year they drafted Carlos Beltran in the second round. Um, what a draft pick still to, to me the most all-around gifted center fielder i've ever seen and i'm i'm probably being a little bit um, overboard with that but just his ability to run and catch and throw and being a switch hitter just and, and maybe not the best center fielder i've ever seen the most naturally gifted center fielder i've ever seen so those guys were coming uh, the royals bullpen that year was uh somewhat of a, a mess uh rusty meacham who i liked had given up a ton of earned runs and had a whip of 1.5 and an era of almost five and billy brewer was so up and down i remember rusty meacham coming in the clubhouse after a game he'd got he had led the league in uh <laughs> what he blown saves and surrendered <laughs> wins or whatever it was he stormed into the clubhouse after the game and he found the pr guy and he goes Tell the scoreboard guy he's not playing the fireman by George Strait anymore because I ain't the fireman. I haven't put out a fire in four weeks. <laughs> but they were good guys. Rusty and Billy were some of my favorite guys. Mike Magnante was on that team, and he was a really good dude. Um, Jim Converse, speaking of Seattle, Jim Converse was kind of just a guy here, and he went to Seattle and had a pretty decent career. Uh, Tom Browning was on that team, and it, I always laugh because the comparison, if you look at him, you don't see Major League Baseball player because he kind of, with his hair and his body type, he looks like mm-hmm. John C. Riley, yes. the actor. <laughs> kind of scraggly and a receding curly hairline, and he would wear these ostrich skin cowboy boots. And it was just—it was odd. But no, I, I have fond memories from that team and those guys with Johnny coming up and and Michael Tucker coming up and Joe uh, Vidiello, Joe Randa. I, I I still have fond memories of those guys. So Tom Goodwin in particular, so entertaining, and it didn't end well. But you're right. After that, the, the page had turned, and the team was going uh, to the youth movement 100%. And I think in was it 2000, they had just an awesome offensive year with um, yep. with Randa and Beltron and Mike Sweeney 
and I'm missing one of the four. Um, Jermaine Die. Jermaine Die, yeah. Yep. Just an awesome offensive season, but it just they they didn't have any pitching. They couldn't go get any, and so yeah, that '95 season that was kind of the end, and the the organization never really recovered. They had one good season with Tony Pena, but never started to recover until 2013, 14, and 15. But I still have, despite all the stuff with the work stoppage, I still have uh, fond memories. It taught me a lot about the business of baseball and the game of baseball, and I'm still friends with a lot of guys to this day. Well, hopefully baseball doesn't shorten this season like it did in 1995. And the Royals, <laughs> the youth movement this time around, it goes a little bit better than the one that uh, they went on in the mid-90s. Uh, but, but, Brad, thanks so much for taking this trip down memory lane. I really do appreciate it. And we'll have to have you on again sometime to talk about Royals baseball. Absolutely, Max, anytime. And my only hope is we get the, we get spring training rolling here soon and get the games going. And we'll be going out to the ballpark and, and having a cold one, whether that's a brewski or a Diet Coke, whatever it is. <laughs> Sounds great, Brad. And you can follow Brad on Twitter at Brad K. Porter. Uh, and when I, we come back, I'll finish things up with Matthew and Jeremy. All right, we're back, and, uh, you know, at some point, hopefully soon, the players will be back, the transactions will be back, the Royals the Royals, and every other team. It's, it's going to be real interesting if they do come back here in the next week or two because there's going to be a feeding frenzy for free agents and, and hopefully trades as well. Matthew, if, you, uh, if, if you're the Royals, what, what, if anything, do you think they still need to address before the season starts, hopefully by April? Nothing. Uh, I mean... Uh, Mostly nothing. I think that it would be prudent to maybe get some bullpen depth. Um, I think getting a guy like if Danny Duffy's available, he makes a great, you know, a great case is like sort of like a swingman um, that the Royals could use, you know, both in the in the bullpen or in the rotation. I think getting a veteran bullpen arm, you know, w- would be fine. You know, there, there, there's a couple of things that they could do. But really, the the Royals roster as it stands right now is probably the most in flux that I have that I can think of is since I've been following the Royals seriously since 2009. I you know I I don't know of another year in which the roster has been this in flux. The reason being we have three top 50 prospects or position players who are going to debut this year in Bobby Witt, MJ Melendez. And Nick Prado, right? We have four college pitchers who the Royals drafted in the first 40 picks of uh, a couple years ago, and none of them have been very good, but all of them could be very good, but you never really know. Um, In addition to that, they've got some other people on the the back end of the bullpen. Uh, Dylan Coleman could be interesting. Um, You know, there's there's Kyle Isbell, who's who's popping around. and some of their other other players like Hunter Dozier and Mondesi are also big question marks. Like you don't know how what you're gonna get from them really. Mondesi especially, he's a huge question mark. He could be anything. If he turned in an all-star season, I would not be surprised. If he was below replacement level and got cut, I would also not be surprised. You know, there's just so much in flux, and we don't really know what the long-term strength of the Royals will be right now. Like we really don't. Like. Here, here, here's a question, Max and Jeremy. Gun to your head. Who is the best world starter? Max, go. <laughs> uh, I guess Brady Singer, just because of youth okay. and like high floor. Okay, Jeremy, go. 
Bubich and Hernandez tied. Okay, that's cheating, but you know that's fine. And I think that <laughs> Daniel Lynch probably. So we have the four different answers, three of us, and like we there's there's no clear there's no we could all be right, we could all be wrong, like. Then that's just one thing. We don't know how good Wit will be. We don't know how good um, you know Prado will be. We don't know how good Melendez will be. We don't know if somebody like Vinny Pasquantino is gonna you know break out, even though his numbers suggest that he could be you know a, a really good sleeper. You know, I, I don't know. The, the Royals have just so much in flux. It makes every sense in the world to stand pat, and then next year after the carnage of this year and see what happens. Then you identify okay. Now we've got multiple seasons of Brady Singer. We've got multiple seasons of Jackson Coar. We've got multiple seasons. We have a full season of Wit, and probably most of the season with Prado and Melendez. Like, okay, now we can start to address what the holes are. I don't know what the holes are, and I don't think really anybody knows. So, stand pat. Jeremy, are the Royals signing Carlos Correa, uh, Carlos Correa this year? Uh, I wish. Um, my, to, to back I, up I, Nicky I, Lopez, right? Yeah, I, that's the thing is is Nicky Lopez definitely has shortstop locked down. There's just no room for Carlos Correa on this roster. Uh, but yeah, I I had some some kind of pie in the sky dreams uh, towards the end of the year where uh, I thought the Royals should maybe try to to fill some projected holes and uh, and otherwise you know expect good years from guys like Wit and Prado and Hernandez and everybody else. To you know, the the constant perpetual Royals uh, thing is to just believe everybody's going to be better next year, um, and so I was like, let's just do that, and then fill in a couple of holes uh, that are still there. And if they were going to do that, they needed to have already done it. Um, so I'm with I'm with Matthew at this point. Uh, just at, we've got a lot of young guys finally in this rebuild. Instead of we, there's no more Lucas Duda, there's no more. Uh, Alcides Escobar. You don't know. Uh, you don't know that Duda could be signed uh, once this lockout's over. <laughs> well, that's the thing. They're not there now. I don't want them there. Um, I want to see the young guys play. We've been. This has been kind of the rallying cry for since at least 2019, probably even 2018, maybe 2017. Uh, let the young guys play. Let's see what they've got. Um, you know, this was a thing with Oliveras last year. Oliveras probably isn't uh, the guy, but there's no harm in playing him and making sure. Instead, we've got Michael A. Taylor out there who we know is not the guy. Uh, it's just, it's, it's, you know, one of those frustrating things. So hopefully this year, let's see the young guys play, uh, as Matthew said. Um, and then it, they've got lots of pitching depth. Uh, if they if they see that they are really close at the end of the year, if they want to make some trades to really go for it in 2023. Yeah, I thought maybe, you know, there might be a chance they would trade one of their pitchers, young pitchers, for like an impact player, uh, kind of pushing their chips a little bit. But the fact that they have such a short off season now, I think that I think that's kind of uh, put the kibosh on that. I don't think it's going to happen now. I, yeah, I agree. I think probably some... Some mostly holding pad. This will be the roster going forward this year. Um, you know, add some bullpen pieces. I, I don't know anything, but I threw out Vince Vince Velasquez as a as a possibility. He's he's younger as for a free agent, a guy that's always had good stuff, but it's never translated to results, and he could start or leave. Probably 
better as a reliever than he has been as a starter. So perhaps you maybe you strike gold and get another Wade Davis. Um, I could see them, you know, getting maybe a veteran reliever in there to be in the mix with Scott Barlow and Josh Stalmont late, late in games. But this is probably largely the team that we're going to have. Um, so, you know, we'll see. I don't, I, I'm not expecting big, big, big moves, but I, you know, I think Matthew, you're right. This is kind of like 2010 when we, you know, we had, we're on the verge of, having Hosmer and Moustakis and Salvi on the team. And so instead we had like placeholders like Wilson Bediment at third and uh, I think Kilakaui at first and, uh, you know, uh, Matt Trainer was the catcher, you know, like, yeah, he knew all those guys weren't there for the long term. Eventually they were going to be replaced and, and, and soon soon we'll see Bobby Wood Jr. and, and Nick Prado and MJ Melendez. You didn't even mention Vinny Pasquantino. I think Alex Duvall is probably gritting his teeth right now listening to this. So, uh, but yeah, it's going to be a transition year and I think next year is going to be the next offseason is going to be the really interesting offseason because then you'll have some guys up and you'll have some probably some holes to fill and, and, and we could see some trades. We could see some free agents. Um, it'll be really interesting at that point. So we'll have to see. We'll we'll get into more into it hopefully when the lockout is indeed over and we can start hearing some trade rumors and uh, free agent rumors and actual moves. Um, let's wrap things up with uh, kind of uh, the one good thing or one recommendation you want to make. And uh, Matthew, we'll start with you. What's so? Uh, what's one good thing you want to recommend? Yeah. So um, if you have been uh, interested in or paying attention to the gaming world um, recently, there's it's been a it's been a very big. Uh, month of February, we have Elden Ring, which just came out or is just coming out, um, which is apparently, you know, a really, um, well, not apparently, it is a very highly um, anticipated game. Uh, but the game that I was more highly anticipating was the sequel to Horizon Zero Dawn, Horizon Forbidden West. I have still yet to play that uh, because I don't have a PS5. And yes, I know it's on the PlayStation 4, but I'm not playing a sequel to one of my favorite games of all time on old hardware. It's not happening, so uh, I'm trying. Yeah, I'm trying to acquire a PlayStation Five, and in the meantime, I've been playing uh, the PlayStation Four, Horizon Zero Dawn. It's still as good as I thought, um, but sort of more a little a little beyond that. Um, you know, I'm I'm a big sci-fi and fantasy uh, guy. That's really the only thing that I read, like sci-fi and fantasy novels, just because. You know, there's so many books out there. I kind of like to hone in on one genre um, and, you know, kind of keep keep abreast with with what's going on in it. Um, and I'm a really big fan of how Horizon Zero Dawn um, sort of subverts a lot of the um, a, a number of the common sci-fi sort of um, sort of things that go on, right? Like apocalyptic and post-apocalyptic uh, happenings. And how we got to this point um, in in history, and the events of it um, are just are unique, and they and they they're an honest, unique take on a lot of common sci-fi tropes, and that's that's really cool to me. Um, if you're not a gamer, a book that really does this is the book Spin by Robert Charles Wilson. Um, it does a fantastic job of dealing with a number of you know very common types of sci-fi. Um, tropes uh like time travel and um mars uh, and it just wraps it in this really really interesting and unique take um and it's 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 unique and you know when you when you realize that i find fantasy you come across the same kinds of things but you don't always come across this you know unique takes on those things so my recommendations would be horizon zero dawn if you haven't played it you should go play it and then uh, spin which is a great novel um, you can pick it up at your local library you're actually the second person today to recommend 
uh, Horizon Zero Dawn to me because my my teenage son also recommended. He's like, hey, if you have some free time, you should play this game, and uh, so I definitely have to check that out. Uh, Jeremy, what do you got for tonight? Uh, I'll just second or third that Horizon Zero Dawn is a gorgeous game with a really interesting story, uh, really fun characters, and a really really fun gameplay as well. Um, but the thing I wanted to recommend today uh, is an anime, and there's a lot of anime out there that I like. There's not a lot that I will recommend just without really understanding someone's taste and, and kind of tailoring it to them. But uh, I've been rewatching uh, my next life as a villainess on uh, on a streaming service. And it's just a show that makes me smile the entire time and makes me laugh multiple times an episode um, it's kind of a it's kind of a goofy show. Um, it's about this girl who dies. It's, it's a very common anime trope is someone who dies and uh, reborn in a video game. So she dies and she's reborn into a video game, um, but she's reborn as the villainess of the video game. And so she spends all of her time trying to make sure that uh, she's not going to be killed by any of the heroes. Um, so it's it's really entertaining. It's really funny and charming and uh sweet and and wholesome and so that's kind of the things i really look for in a really good anime that i want to recommend to everyone so that's what i'll i'll leave everyone with today cool well uh my royals review recommendation today is uh joe posnanski is a is a great writer i think everyone probably listening probably knows that uh he has a book called the baseball 100 that i've been reading for a couple of days now um it's it's for long-time Royals review readers, you may remember that I used to have a top 100 Royals of all time that <laughs> took forever and was really incomplete because it didn't even have... I mean, it covered, like, the, the entire span of Alex Gordon's career and doesn't even include him. So, um, you know, it's 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 a difficult undertaking. Uh, and Joe Pesnansky has done that, except with all players of all time. And it's it's a really great book. Just, number one, I like books you can kind of pick up and, and set down because and, and, you know, each... Each chapter is like its own player, and so you don't have to kind of read it straight through. If you don't want to, you can kind of skip around. Uh, but I like reading it straight through because there's I, I consider myself a pretty well-versed in baseball history, and there's just a lot of players that are great, great Hall of Fame players that I just don't, I don't know anything about. Um, Archie Vaughn, uh, for example, was like the Alex Rodriguez of his day, and he didn't play that long ago. He played like right after World War II, and like no one remembers him. And he even talks about how Rex Hudler and Ryan Lefevre like joke that they, they've never heard of Archie Vaughn. And, and Archie Vaughn's this great player who, you know, is on par with like Joe DiMaggio and all these other players. So it's it's really cool. And he does a really good job covering like the Negro League players who, um, you know, I don't think enough has been covered about some of these guys like Oscar Charleston, who maybe may have been one of the best players of all time. We just don't know. You know, obviously, we know Satchel Page and Josh Gibson a little bit, but um, guys like uh, Smokey Joe Williams, we don't know as much about. Um, or at least, you know, I think the average fan doesn't know much about. It. So uh, it's a really cool book. I mean, it obviously, he's got guys you have are much more familiar with. George Brett's in there. Um, a really cool chapter I read last night about Chipper Jones. Um, but if you're a baseball history buff or even someone that wants to know a little bit more about the game, I highly recommend Joe Posnanski's uh, book, The Baseball 100. Don't take the ranking super seriously. He puts guys kind of not really in order. I mean, he puts Joe DiMaggio at 56, even though he doesn't really think he's the 56th best player of all time, but because of his 56-game hitting streak. So it's not, like, super serious. But 
Um, the, but the, the the excerpts are. I think each chapter is 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 very well researched and very well uh, very well written, of course. Uh, so uh, it's been out for a while. So I, I definitely I highly recommend Joe Posnanski's work. I, I read his book about Harry Houdini earlier th- or this year, uh, so that kind of got me going with with uh, his baseball book. But uh, really, anything he writes, I'll I'll go out and read. So so check out the Baseball One Hundred by Joe Posnanski. And that'll do it for us this week. Uh, thanks again to Brad Porter for his time, and thanks to Jeremy and Matthew for coming on today. Uh, and from everyone at Royals Review Radio, we'll talk to you next time. Hey!